genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast. So, my name is Al. My name is Leanne. And if you've been listening or watching for a little while, then you probably know already that Leanne is the expert in people and culture and I am not. So, Leanne, give us your 10 second introduction into how amazing you are. My name is Leanne and I'm amazing. 10 <laughs> seconds, nailed it. <laughs> Well, maybe just expand a little bit on why. <laughs> a little you're bit amazing. more context, sure. Now, my name is Leanne Elliott. I'm a business psychologist and I've been working in the world of people and culture for the last 15 years or so. And my job is to basically create work environments in which people can thrive and care as much about the business as the business owners and leaders do too. Cool. And I am not that. Uh, I'm a business owner and um, co-founder of this. And so I will be asking Leanne the questions that us as founders who don't have the expertise and the 15, 20 years experience that Leanne's got, asking the questions that really matter to us. So today we are talking about imposter syndrome. So we have a quiz for you, listener. What do you, what do the following people have in common? Cheryl Sandberg, Serena Williams, Arianna Huffington from Huffington Post, I think. Mm -hmm. Michelle Obama, Albert Einstein, and Howard Schultz. That's the guy who did Starbucks, I think, wasn't it? Sure was. So, shout out. Now, if you're in the car, shout out the answer. <laughs> Maybe not. because Great be hair. <laughs> That's true. Einstein did have great hair. <laughs> really good hair. Michelle Obama, I mean, come on. True, true. Okay, so what is the answer, Leah? The answer is that they are all self-proclaimed sufferers of imposter syndrome. So today we're going to dive deep into this famous condition, in inverted commas, uh, you'll find out, um, and figure out the truth and lies behind this affliction and what it is and how it can possibly affect up to 82% of the population, apparently. That is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. So should we start by saying, what is imposter syndrome? Yes. So bear with me. I'm going to get my psychology nerd out now. Okay. I'll stop me if I go too far. Well, so 
imposter syndrome. I actually prefer to call it imposter phenomenon. Um, and it was first described uh, by a couple of psychologists called Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Immers back in 1978. And they basically observed that high performing or high achieving individuals, despite all of their successes fell to internalize these accomplishments, basically have lots of self-doubt, a fear of being exposed as a fraud. And typically when people are experiencing imposter phenomenon, they struggle to attribute their performance to themselves. They'll either say, oh, it was luck, or I had a massive amount of help here. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's one of it's one of the self-doubt, I think, is the kind of the central theme of it. Um, but more than that, people who do have imposter phenomenon or experiencing it and do have a setback in life that we all do, they'll attribute that as proof that they are in fact an imposter. So how do you differentiate imposter syndrome from being very British syndrome? Where we tend not <laughs> to take it, we tend to go, oh no, it wasn't me. No, no, it was it was we were very lucky that day. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with with imposter phenomenon in its purest sense is such this kind of dissonance between achieving these great things and feeling like you had nothing to do with it causes a lot of stress um, and that itself can lead to burnout. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the difference really between being modest and actually or being having self-doubt or experiencing imposter phenomenon makes perfect sense okay so you call it impost imposter phenomenon not mm. imposter syndrome and imposter what phenomenon Phenomenon. That... <laughs> i think there was an extra nomenon in there <laughs> <laughs> maybe have we been watching the muppets a little bit too much <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what, what what is it why is it called a phenomenon phenomenon and not a syndrome yeah so i think the first and simplest answer is it's not a syndrome so in terms of kind of a syndrome, which would be a collection of symptoms, which are usually associated with a particular disease or disorder, it's not recognised as that in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I love how psychologists are always with the catchy names. They're very, they, yeah, they're very, very commercially minded, aren't they? <laughs> very commercially Naming minded. their papers. Yes, but this is basically the handbook that professionals will use all over the world to diagnose a whole variety of mental disorders. And imposter syndrome does not appear in the DSM. Similarly, imposter syndrome can be classed as other things in the psychology world or in the mental wellness work. Um, and one of those is, is a cognitive distortion or what's more commonly known, commonly known as a thinking error. So a thinking error is when we use inadequate data or inappropriate data to draw conclusions. Um, and in, in because of that data being inadequate or insufficient, uh, it means we're drawing illogical conclusions. And that's what is in it. That is what a thinking error is, or a type of thinking error. Did you error just have is. a thinking error then when you said that? I had my whole day of thinking <laughs> errors, honestly. Um, but yes, and, and in, in this context, imposter syndrome is known as phonyism. Um, so, this is where exactly what the description I just gave you, imposter syndrome, is. It's somebody feeling that, that if they get something wrong, if they fail in one particular task, people are going to generalize that failure to all aspects of their life and/or work and call them out as the fraud that they are. That makes perfect sense. So it is a phenomenon and not a syndrome. And uh, it is essentially down to when you have this thinking error where 
you're not just being polite and saying, oh, it wasn't me, it was the team. You actually genuinely in your heart, heart believes, believe that it was external forces that, that achieved this thing rather than you. Exactly. And when we tie that together with what, what we said earlier, that people who experience imposter phenomenon are are typically high intelligent high achievers it's this this mismatch this dissonance that that causes stress and therefore burnout um, and potentially dips in in performance as well the other thing to consider about imposter syndrome is the actual study that that first found this phenomenon um and I think that's really important. If you're considering any kind of intervention when it comes to people and culture and you're using quite rightly theory to inform your practice, don't be afraid of scrutinizing the theory. Not all theory is equal. Not all theory is as high quality as another. Or we have to bear in mind the time and context in which that theory was created. So if we take a positive phenomenon, for example, it was found in 1978. And it was done with a sample that was 100% women. Now, let's think about the world of work for a woman in the 1970s. What comes to mind, Al? Uh, the last season of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, if anyone's seen any a UK drama called Life on Mars, where it was set in the 70s, um, any kind of like drama from the 90s was often set in the 70s in the workplace, which seemed to be a lot of like, oh, smack her on the bottom and um, run along, run along, love, and go and get us a cup of tea, sort of kind of thing. Is, is get that... me a coffee, sweet cheeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and sadly, you know, that that was the case. And But if we consider the, the context, the political context at the time, um, the Sex Discrimination Act didn't pass in the UK until the mid-1970s. Um, in the US until about then as well, the mid-70s, did you know that women couldn't apply for credit in their own name without a male co-signer? Well, they need to be controlled. <laughs> well, that's what, well, that was a thought of the day, Al. Joking, obviously. Of course. And then the Pregnancy Discrimination Act in the US, a similar act in the UK, which basically means that women's jobs are protected while they have babies and go on maternity. That also didn't come in until the mid-1970s. So there is an argument, and I think quite a valid argument, that this phenomenon was observed in a sample of women in the 1970s, who were more than likely in workplaces where their environment contained a lot of bias, a lot of discrimination. So feeling this kind of self-doubt or being being questioned in your role, I think actually just sounds like a fair observation of the environment they were mm. operating in. Um, so actually, it's it can be argued that is imposter phenomenon, <clears throat> excuse me, a phenomenon, or was actually just a, a result of bias and discrimination that was happening within the workplace against women in the 1970s. So this makes me think uh, a little bit of, I mean, I don't know much about psychology, but I know what you've told me. The Freud, where his sample survey was his children sometimes. Uh, of Myers-Briggs, where their sample survey was, let's sit down and make some shit up. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> it was. I don't think they even had a sample. <laughs> just had a whiteboard and a, had an idea. <laughs> whiteboard and a dream. <laughs> My God, they made it come true, didn't they? They did. But what's interesting is that our... Our need to kind of label ourselves 
kind of, you know, you feel, don't feel right now where people seem to want to go, oh, well, I am this, I am ADHD, I am bipolar, I'm whatever. This is a very convenient way for us to label ourselves without actually having to delve into our subconscious and all of our, um, <laughs> all of our insecurities and sort of examine those in a bit more light. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's where my kind of main area of concern around the the huge popularity of people associating themselves as having imposter syndrome is exactly that. That we have to be really careful with the with the, the words and and symptoms or diagnoses we associate with. Yes, it can be empowering and it can absolutely inform vital coping strategies. But in this case, there is a danger, I think, where what is just natural self-doubt particularly in environments where we are outside of our comfort zone we are pushing ourselves or we're working in a field that's very creative or innovative um there is going to be that element of self-doubt unless you're a narcissist that's a completely normal feeling to have um so i think you're right and my, my fear is you know about self-fulfilling prophecy if we really internalize this to the point where we start to really believe it then it is going to inhibit our performance and ultimately lead to burnout so are we saying that actually imposter phenomenon or syndrome, whatever you want to call it, um, doesn't exist and it's a lie? It's not so much that it's a lie and it's not so much that it's a truth. There is a whole lot of grey um, in any kind of, of psychological term or workplace or individual phenomenon or phenomena. Um, I think it's really phenomena. just making sure... Phenomena, is that the plural? I Thank like you. it. I don't I care whether it is or not. first time though, man. I like it. Anyway, got Sorry. there. No, it's fine. Um, but I just think any term that we're going to associate with ourselves is really taking the time to understand it. And if we boil down imposter phenomenon, even if we accept that initial sample of women, what it really boils down to is that these thinking errors become part of our, we internalize them to a point where our behaviors, our thoughts, our feelings start to become destructive. Um, so in terms of 82% of people think they're experiencing a positive phenomenon, I'd say probably 80% of those are just humble, <laughs> a nice person that are trying to, you know, not come across as too braggy um, or more relatable. Um, but yeah, in terms of its truest sense, I think it does exist, but I'm not sure it's quite as prolific as we're led to believe. So let's look at the other side of it. So let's imagine that you are, uh, say, for example, in the 70s, and you're an immigrant um, into Australia, UK, wherever you are. Um, then the, it is correct, based on what I hear from my parents, it is correct that there was definitely an environment which would make you feel less worthy. Um, I remember you mentioned someone thinking something about, was it a Talisa lady who did yeah. some stuff on this? Yeah, and I think it still is very relevant. You know, we have moved on from the 1970s, but not sufficiently. The gender pay gap is still very real. There is still massive bias against people of colour, depending on sexuality, on gender identification. Um, it's, yeah, systemic bias and discrimination still exists. And this is a point that, yeah, Talisa Lavery, um, who wrote a book called Confessions from Your Token Black, colleague um, and she reflects on imposter phenomenon in exactly this way that when you're faced in an environment with a systemic bias that lack of self-confidence is going to be a fairly normal and expected reaction okay so let's get to some brass facts then so let's brass facts 
brass facts. <laughs> I, I, th I thought I said facts, but uh, maybe, I, maybe I said facts. So um, tell, talk us through the actual science behind the imposter phenomenon. Give us some, some facts. Mm -hmm. So I said before, if you're going to base your practice on some kind of psychology theory, dive into the, the actual study of it, who did it, what the sample was, where it came from, what the political and, and, and time environment was. Equally, if you are fortunate enough to um, to be looking at an area of practice that has a lot of research in, and you probably should, um, then there's going to be things called either a meta-analysis or a systematic review. And that's when researchers will gather all the existing research and papers published to date and draw conclusions on the findings. And those findings are going to have much higher reliability and validity, or they're going to be a lot more easier to generalize without making a mistake um, if that those conclusions are drawn from this type of review. So with that in mind, there was um, some uh, researchers led by Bravata in 2020. So recent research as well, also important. Um, and this was actually um, the first systematic review of imposter syndrome, their choice of term. Um, and it was actually published in the Journal of Mental Health and Clinical Psychology. If you want to be a super nerd about it, also look at the journal that it's published in because that's going to tell you kind of the credibility and quality of the research. Good tip. Mm. But what they found, so they looked at 62 peer-reviewed studies, over 14,000 individuals with imposter syndrome published between 1966 and May 2018. And they made some interesting observations. When you hear imposter syndrome, have you seen anything out that be more associated with women? Yeah, I yes, like anecdotally, I've not mm -hmm. like seen a study, but yes, I've, I, I've, I've. Do you know what I see quite often? If I see that someone has got a women-only group, for example, on Facebook, then it appears that they'll in the description will say to deal with imposter syndrome. So that's where my thinking is coming from. Not that I think that women have imposter syndrome. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. I think a lot more women may either talk about it or vocalize it or identify with it. Um, probably a combination of all three. What they actually found in the research was that. Imposter syndrome affects both men and women equally. Mm. The difference was actually that women described more symptoms of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. Um, so they felt that more aspects of their life were, were impacted by it. But in terms of um, people who identify it, men and women identified equally. In terms of the prevalence, we said, you know, right at the top, up to 82% of, um, of the population can be affected by this or have experienced this. This is where I always kind of, especially if I see like a data point like that in a headline or, you know, a bit of clickbait. I'm always like, mm, maybe, let's see. But what they actually found is that, yes, up to 82% in some studies do identify with imposter syndrome. But in other studies, it's as low as 9%. And that's a fairly large gap, 9 to 82%. So is it as prevalent? I guess it depends on a number of things, how it's defined, how it's measured, how it's profiled. Um, there's lots of different different um, variants in there. Um, and ultimately as well, the thing to remember is that if as a researcher, if you conduct some research in imposter syndrome, particularly if you've got funding for that research, and you don't find any evidence of imposter syndrome, it's quite unlikely you're going to publish that research. Mm. So we're going to have this um, publication bias uh, within within the research as well. 
Another, um, I guess, preconception of imposter phenomenon is that it tends to affect people who are either younger or earlier stages of their career. Um, and they actually found that while there was a little bit of a decrease in terms of feelings of imposter syndrome as people got older or later in their career, it wasn't significant. Um, so when we say, when you, if you ever hear anything that says it's not statistically significant um, in the science world, that means that we've done lots of fancy calculations on the data and it's as much down to chance that we found that right. that finding um so yeah so while anecdotally there seemed to be some evidence that wasn't found to be significant i am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast nudge we love nudge hosted by phil agnew a true gent it is, of course, brought to you by the Hubspot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. In fact, if you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. So tell me, are there, is there a particular type of person who it's more likely to affect? Yeah, it's going to more than likely affect people who are highly intelligent and are high achievers. I was about to say, I fit 50% of that, I think. <laughs> Maybe not 50%. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the meta-analysis found overwhelmingly that people who experience imposter phenomenon aggressively pursue achievement as a one. And then the second one is not being able to accept the, accept the recognition when the success is achieved. So if we even think about people who aggressively pursue achievements, what was that list, Al? Sheryl Sandberg, Michelle Obama, mm. Albert Einstein. These people are operating at the forefront of their field. Mm. Um in environments where they might be doing things for the first time. So again, it makes sense that these feelings are, are going to be there. The real crux of imposter phenomenon, the thing that makes it different from just kind of feeling like you're operating outside of your comfort zone, is that you are unable to accept recognition when success is achieved. That is what makes kind of a lack of confidence or a bit of self-doubt different to imposter phenomenon. That's really interesting because I think that I think that I used to externally say, oh, it's not down to me, it was down to my team when something really cool happened uh, in business or whatever, or whatever su success I had. But inside, I was a bit like, yeah, yeah, it was me. <laughs> it was me. So that wasn't imposter phenomenon. That was just Britishness, the British phenomenon. Yeah, I was just being a nice person that's right. not, you know, that's not ego. Not an arsehole. Not, yeah, not a dick. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, knowing that you need to, of course, you, you probably weren't the only person that contributed to that goal. There's going to be other people that contributed as well. But in terms of who led the, the charge for that, if that was down to you, then yeah, damn right. It's your success and you should celebrate it. I want to talk about, or I want to ask you about the upsides of imposter phenomenon in a second, but I'm just thinking, 
Is there an opposite to that? You know, you hear about, especially on Reddit and on TikTok recently, there's a lot of memes or videos going on around, around these where the boss will take all of the credit for the team and not even mention the team, which kind of feels like the opposite of imposter syndrome. Is, is, does that such a, such a thing exist? Has it got a term? I think I think it is. It's narcissism. Right. That's what it really stems to. That everything is driven by you is my success. There is no, there's no negative or constructive feedback that can possibly alter my my very high um, sense of of worth and 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 value and how I see myself and operate in the world. Um, I guess it's that. I guess it's similar in the case that people with imposter phenomenon will look at a setback and incorrectly um, attribute that to backing up their feelings of of being a fraud, whereas a narcissist is going to get a setback and probably attribute that to somebody else. Mm, I think we we all know people like that. Yeah, we do. So... if you do feel like you've, or you realize you now have imposter, or someone's listening and realize they now have imposter phenomenon or syndrome, then are there actually any upsides to having that? I mean, not really. Being honest, if you've got imposter phenomenon in the purest sense, this dissonance, this disconnect between between what you think and in terms of your role and the achievements and not being able to, inter- to internalize that success, um, that is going to lead to a lot of stress and ultimately burnout. Um, so yeah, so it's it's not it's not a good path to be on if you are genuinely experiencing imposter phenomenon. That said, we do know um, the same research found that people with imposter phenomenon do tend to be better at building relationships, do be- tend to be better at managing sensitive situations. But I actually put that down to probably more than likely this person is also likely to have high emotional intelligence. Um, and because they're not ego-driven and they are probably more collaborative, um, then that is, is yeah, building relationships is, is going to be a part of, of their strengths. But I'm not sure that's a, a big enough pro to just accept I have imposter phenomenon. I'll just accept it. Fair enough. Fair enough. So if you do ha- or someone recognises they've got this, then what sort of steps can they take to to overcome this or fix this? Yeah, so I think if if you're a business owner and you think that imposter phenomenon is something that you're experiencing, I think the first thing to do, and I actually say this to any leader who's going through their transition or a transformation within their organization or just a, a, a setback, a hard time, spend some time to reflect. And I know that can seem a bit indulgent when you're a busy leader and have got lots of different things to do. But even if it's just 10 to 15 minutes a day for a week. Try and reflect on those thoughts, feelings and behaviours that you're observing as imposter phenomenon and ask yourself, is it you? Am I? How genuine are these thoughts or feelings? Or are they maybe more a lack of confidence or self-doubt? Is it your environment? Are there is it fair that you're experiencing these things because the environment that you're in is toxic or there is bias and discrimination? Um, it might be that it's a, a combination of both. I think once you've started to reflect on on those thoughts and feelings, coaching is a really great way to dive deeper into that. Working with a coach as a leader is one of the most important things that you can do to help you reflect, to help you process what is going on in your busy life um, and really start to to make sense of those and come up with some more uh, constructive um, and productive coping mechanisms. In terms of if you really genuinely think you have imposter phenomenon, 
my advice would be to seek out what we call a cognitive behavioral coach. There are lots of different coaches out there and lots that would take very different approaches. Um, so if, if this is particularly something um, that you're suffering with, I would recommend cognitive behavioral coaching. The reason for that is that cognitive behavioral coaching it stems from cognitive behavioral therapy. It's an extension of that to what we call kind of people who are who are dealing with um, feelings of, of distress in inverted commas normally it's not causing any um any acute mental health challenges um and what it's basically gonna help you do is explore these thinking errors um which are um definitely a part of imposter phenomenon but may also uh phonyism for example this thing would be a fraud maybe one of many thinking areas that you're thinking errors that you're experiencing um, and depending on these combination of areas it might indicate something else that you're struggling with mentally or cognitively um, or a cognitive coach is going to help you start to undo these ways of thinking reframe your thinking and again start to come up with some some better coping mechanisms um so yeah that would be my advice for leaders brilliant and if you are looking for a coach then we provide coaching services we also have a network of coaches who specialize in certain things so um if you are looking for a decent coach and a good referral then just uh you'll be some contact details in the show notes um obviously all of it is confidential naturally now you talked about this thinking error which i've not i don't think i've come across that that term before mm -hmm. so what what would you define as a? Th I mean, are there different types of thinking areas? Is it just one thing? What what's what, how does it all work? Yeah, there are many different types of, of thinking areas, and I guess what it is, it's almost like a little spanner in our cognitive works. Um, things mm. aren't quite being processed in in the way that they they should be. As I said, that it, it's coming to those conclusions based on inadequate or inappropriate data, um, and there's there's a few, there's many different types of thinking errors. Um, one is like an all or nothing thinking um so things are very black and white um you know there, there are good people there are bad people um a project is either going to be a success or a failure people will describe things as being awesome or terrible um there's no kind of middle ground it's very extremist in in that way of thinking that's a a very common thinking error um i think another one that you probably be familiar with um is mind reading um so basically when you know you, you're never sure you never be sure what somebody else is thinking but you will you will draw these conclusions based on your experience of it and typically quite extreme conclusions um so for example if you you say something in a meeting it doesn't quite get the response that you anticipated you might walk out and go they must have thought i'm an absolute idiot how stupid am i did you see his face he thought i was a loser and um, that would be a, an example of, of mind reading so so we've started with two, the first two, all or nothing thinking and mind reading. I I can definitely, I can't, I can't, I can't um, relate to the first one, all or nothing thinking, because I've really worked hard not to train myself not to think like that. But certainly mind reading, that's so difficult not to think that, that you get off a call and you're almost always like, oh God, did I make a fool of myself? Are they laughing at me? All that kind of stuff. Um, are there any other types of thinking error that you think we might sort of accidentally start thinking <laughs> doing <laughs> yeah and i think the thing is you know we all experience these thinking areas it's not to say that 
that we have some cognitive dysfunction happening if we catch ourselves in this thinking error. And you made a really great point there, Al, that you do have to train your mind. And that's exactly what cognitive behavioral coaching will do. It will help you retrain your mind to think differently. Um, But I think another one that comes up up quite a lot is catastrophizing. Um, So basically kind of catastrophe I guess it's in the name so say for example um I have a monthly budget for savings um and I not only miss that but I also massively overspend then I'm going to start freaking out because I'm going to be bankrupt by the end of the year Mm. but other possible conclusion is I'm going to be bankrupt by the end of the year that's an example of catastrophizing yeah I I, when I was I was bankrupt back in 2005, 2007, actually, I think was was the date I went bankrupt. Um, and so I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't pay my bills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I picked up a few books. Um, I think uh, Mark Victor Hansen, um, a couple of others, Jack Canfield, worked through those. Um, and they were really good at kind of like through the pages, teaching me things like I shouldn't say I can't afford it. Because that in is automatically put in the back of my head, mm. I haven't got money. There's other things like people, oh, they're filthy rich. Um, mm. You know, and that's just, I know that's not catastrophizing, but that's sort of going, I'm associating that someone who's got money is filthy and therefore I don't want anything to do with it. Um, so I think there's all kinds of things like this. And, and I mean, the other one is like the people who, are, who overgeneralize, who say things like mm. all, um, like, oh, here's a perfect one. Oh, all staff are just, who work from home are on Facebook. Um, I know someone who says who says that quite a lot. Well, no one can work from home because they'll just all be on Facebook, won't they? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is just, as you say, it's a thinking error, but also it's kind of it's going to have a massive ramification on the way that you act if that becomes your belief because you're saying it, even if you're saying it, starting off saying it in a flippant way. Yeah, completely. And and I think that is the danger, isn't it? That and I think this is where kind of the bring it back to the imposter phenomenon it can it can become this flippant term that's thrown around whereas actually and I think in itself then kind of takes away from people that are either experiencing discrimination and bias in their workplace or people who are genuinely authentically struggling with imposter phenomenon um so I think we need to I guess it's a lot of people you know saying oh I'm depressed it's like you might be a bit down. We're mm-hmm. not talking clinical level depression. Um, I think it's a similar thing. But yeah, I mean, if you if you think you're experiencing these thinking errors, my advice would be just to keep a little a little journal, a little notebook. And if you catch yourself in a, in a thinking error, just jot it down and maybe make a couple of notes in terms of the time of day it was. If you just come out of a stressful meeting, if little Billy is your little kids driving crazy Um, because often environmental factors are going to influence the severity and frequency of thinking errors. Brilliant. So do you think we're ready to talk about if someone notices imposter syndrome on a member of their team? Yes. And I think I, I I know that I've kind of made a point. Do you know, is it really imposter phenomenon? Is it something else? Um, but I say that to you as a business leader. Um, I don't say this to as an employee. If an employee came to me saying that they felt that they were experiencing imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, I would take that at face value and I would accept that that is the vocabulary that they're comfortable to to use to describe how they're currently thinking and feeling about work. Um, and I think there's a few um, different interventions you can take um, as a leader if you're if you're experiencing this in, in your team or getting this feedback. 
And I think the first one is to look at some kind of psychometric and specifically a 360 psychometric. So we talked a lot about this on a previous episode. Um, Myers-Briggs, brilliant or bullshit. Um, <laughs> good one. Um, we talked a lot about psychometrics and how to scrutinize the, uh, the quality of them. So I won't go into too much detail. But if we just take example, um, Clifford Strengths. So a lot of my clients will talk about doing strength, some kind of strengths profiling within their team if they're experiencing um, imposter phenomena or think they are um because sure you know if we do a psychometric that's going to call out our strengths then that's going to give us confidence in what we're good at the difficulty is with a lot of strengths profiles is their self-report so self-report is when i answer questions um about myself based on my perceptions of my strengths and the tricky thing with that is that one, people aren't always necessarily very accurate at identifying their own strengths. Um, and two, if I am genuinely experiencing positive phenomenon, I'm probably not going to be in a, in a space where I can really talk about my strengths comfortably mm. um, and, and honestly. So to flip that, a 360 is going to assess um, a person's strengths um, from multiple viewpoints. So yes, I will answer questions about my perception of my, my strengths. I'll also ask my line manager to complete the same questions. I'll ask my colleague, my peer, to complete those questions. I might ask a customer or one of my direct reports. And then we bring all of those, um, all of that data together. We'll have a much fuller picture of not only what I believe my strengths are, but what the people around me in my work environment think. And 99% of the time there is always a gap between what people think they're good at what they're actually good at what they think they're rubbish at what they're actually their peers and colleagues think they're, they're brilliant at um, I think this kind of honest data and fuller picture is going to enable much more easily the conversations that's going to steer somebody through feelings of imposter phenomenon and ultimately, you know, if you do have that data, again, the ethical and right thing to do to have the most impact is to make sure that that person has access to coaching, whether it be just a follow-up feedback session to help digest the results, or ideally at least kind of three to, to five sessions to put in some put in place some some great coping mechanisms. I love it. I love it. And I think the coaches, having a coach these days is just seems a lot more, you know, okay than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I think it's brilliant because you talk to a lot of people who've got coaches and then coaches have got coaches. And, you know, when you when you, when you get into it, they're probably the, the very successful people have got coaches, several different coaches who do Absolutely, several different yeah. things. So I really like now that coaching is a totally acceptable thing to do. So is there anything else that you think that you could you could do to help someone on your team who's feeling mm -hmm. this um, this imposter syndrome? I think there are a couple of things. I think the thing with doing a 360 and then follow with coaching it is an expensive intervention. Um, I imagine you will be looking at least probably kind of six hundred to a thousand pounds per employee to kind of go through that. Um, that kind of tool and then have kind of three to four coaching sessions as follow-up. So it is an expensive solution. You can run a similar or a more informal 360 yourself, um, you know, by asking people to write down their strengths. And I think you actually have done this exercise, Al, where you then ask other people to email you what they believe your strengths I are. I have, yeah. Yeah, so you can do it much more, much more informally. Um, I think it's important to, to, to understand kind of the... Um, the environment you're operating in and kind of how relationships are between your team at the moment because if you are just asking for kind of a, 
a blanket, no guidance view of of kind of that kind of feedback, um, then it might open a can of worms that you can't get the lid back on. Mm. Uh, whereas using a structured psychometric is going to have standardized questions that that will will guide ultimately a, a much more positive and constructive outcome. Um, so yeah, it's something you can do, but with a warning, only do it if you're really confident in how your, your team are operating at the moment. And I think the final thing is actually really ask yourself um, as a leader, um, is it me? Am I creating an environment where there might be bias, there might be bullying, there might be discrimination, where these feelings of imposter syndrome are actually just just feelings of of a lack of confidence and self-doubt based on the environment that somebody is is currently operating in? That's a really hard answer, a question to answer yourself. Things that you could do, something like an engagement survey or a well-being survey um, is going to identify any pockets of toxicity or discrimination that could be a source of this. Um, or if you think it is perhaps or maybe more confident that there is an issue with discrimination or bias in your workplace, um, conducting some kind of diversity and inclusion audit is a really great way to go. Fantastic. So any closing thoughts for someone who's listened to this this far and thinks, yep, I've either got it myself, I feel like I might have it myself, or I know one or two people on my team who've got it. Any other thoughts? My final thoughts is that it is something that can be managed, it can be dealt with, um, but something that if it isn't like anything in the workplace, if we pretend it doesn't, it isn't there, it's going to get bigger and bigger and ultimately start to impact well-being, performance um, and, and yeah, all, all of the things you don't want it to affect. Um, so I'd say nip it in the bud, take it seriously um, and yeah, get, get some support. Brilliant. Um, I'm pretty sure you've put together a few resources that people can uh, can link. We can link to down below in the show notes. Um, I think. Did you say you're also linking to Dr. Audrey Tang's book? Yes, there's a good book from uh, Dr. Audrey Tang, The Leader's Guide to Resilience. That there's a few exercises in there that touch on imposter phenomenon, but it really is more about building your own um, self confidence and belief and resilience as a leader. Um, so yeah, we'll do that, and then then yeah, we'll put some other links in there, either to 360s. Um, but to be honest, any good, big, credible um, test publisher is going to have that. Uh, Real World Group, for example, Hogan has a really good 360, but we will link them link them below, along with some articles that we've come across that just talk a bit about imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon, uh, the do's, don'ts, ups and downs, truth and lies. Brilliant. Okay, so I think we'll call that a day for today. Um, as ever, if you've got if you've got a question about well-being, engagement, anything we've talked about today, and you want to talk to um, an expert in this, then you need to email us. Just email Leanne at oblonghq.com, and one of us will set up an appointment for you, and you can chat for fifteen minutes, or you can set up a proper hour or so and a session, and we can organise some kind of payment there. Um, anything else you want to add before we call it a day? No, I think we're good. Brilliant. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. See you next week. Bye bye. Thank you.